You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. APT10 has been fishing U.S. utilities. Google wins a big round over the EU's right to be forgotten. European courts are also considering binding contractual clauses and privacy shield, which together have facilitated transatlantic data transfer. 27 nations agree on responsible state behavior in cyberspace, a hawkish take on Huawei's 5G ambitions, and Edward Snowden's book is being used as fishbait, not, we hasten to say, by Mr. Snowden. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 24th, 2019. Proofpoint has released a report concluding that APT-10, associated with China's government, was responsible for a series of phishing attacks conducted against at least 17 entities in the U.S. utilities sector between April 5th and August 29th of this year. The malware used, called LookBack, which was discovered in the wild in July, was embedded in malicious Microsoft Word files attached to emails. The APT impersonated the Engineering Research and Intelligence Institution, and its emails represented themselves as invitations to complete the Global Energy Certification Exam. The activity appears to involve reconnaissance and battle space preparation. The European Union's Court of Justice has found that Google is not liable for enforcing the EU's right to be forgotten worldwide. The poignantly named right to be forgotten guarantees European citizens the right to have information about them removed from the Internet, and particularly from that portion of the Internet indexed by search engines, which of course makes the rule particularly important to Google. The court ruled that the EU could not require Google and others to remove data from the World Wide Web as a whole, and that its writ didn't run outside its member nations. So it would seem that European regulations will, at least in this respect, fall short of becoming a de facto global regime. The ruling was certainly welcome to Google, but it will take a bit of time before companies and others fully work out its implications. The Wall Street Journal thinks other decisions expected soon will introduce more uncertainty into transatlantic data transfers. There's a challenge to the EU's privacy shield rules that may make it more difficult to move information between Europe and North America. 
Privacy Shield, the 2016 successor to Safe Harbor, had governed such transfers along with standard contractual clauses. Both Privacy Shield and the contractual clauses are being challenged on the grounds that they don't sufficiently protect European data from American misuse. A decision on the binding contractual clauses is expected in December, with one on Privacy Shield to follow shortly thereafter. If you do transatlantic business, prepare to lawyer up. Lately, it seems that distributors of ransomware have been targeting cities and municipalities. For a variety of reasons, they've been irresistible targets for these particular crooks. Fleming Shi is chief technology officer at Barracuda Networks. He offers these insights. A lot of the ransomware attacks in the past are going after consumers, but uh, we're seeing uptaking attacks on uh, cities where potentially cities can pay more, but you know also uh, some cities are starting to have insurance coverage. Uh, I, I, that's one of the biggest fear I have is when once we have insurance coverages, uh, you can have larger payouts. The bad guys kind of just uh, go after that kind of uh, a situation where then. Obviously, they get more pay. You know, we're feeding the the attackers in that way, right? And what makes these city governments and, and small towns and so forth, what makes them a particularly attractive target? Basically, a lot of the attacks are going after services that could affect, um, you know, basically basic uh, services, right? Including law enforcement, which can be disrupted. Uh, I think... The, the, the level of impact uh, to everyday life is uh, higher, um, especially when they hit home in, in the cities. And also, information related to citizens are gold to the bad guys, right? Um, you, you can um, identify relationships between people. If you get that information, you can identify social engineering angles to, to further mount additional personal attacks or more targeted attacks against people using their information to uh, do more damage to, uh, you know, by opening accounts and doing things like that. So I think the information within city halls and uh, used to be uh, walled off with a lot of protection, physical protection now, uh, you know, can be easily exposed uh, digitally, uh, which uh, becomes a fuel for, for the bad guys to, uh, to do more to everyone. So what are your recommendations for cities to go about protecting themselves? What sort of things should they put in place? The number one thing is figure out how not to pay the ransom. If the business is not there for the bad guys, they will retreat. The only way you can protect yourself really from a situation like this is uh, making sure all your perimeters and all your uh, attack surfaces are covered. Email, obviously, is one of the highest uh, attack uh, vectors uh, by the bad guys. Uh, at the same time, make sure you have backup, right? And also uh, ensure the backup is uh, being tested. So the re- restoration of your back, you know, your data is sufficiently fast enough so you can restore services if you need to. Also train uh, the city clerks and do, uh, you know, phishing training uh, and also ensuring the email that's coming in, the attachments are clean. So there are multi- multitude of things you can do by having a good backup that's well-tested, also well-trained staff who touches um, citizens' data, you know, and also ensuring that all the applications that's uh, actually accessible by the citizens are uh, protected uh, by some type of web application firewalling capability so you can um, defend against SQL injection, cross-site scripting, all those 
very standard things because applications in the, the private sectors are very useful, especially web applications. And now they're becoming more useful in public sector as well. So you can do lots of things online, right? I think it's a added convenience, but also exposes a greater surface for potential attacks. That's Fleming Shi from Barracuda Networks. As the United Nations General Assembly's annual summit meets, some 27 countries, including all the Five Eyes, have issued a brief joint statement on advancing responsible state behavior in cyberspace. It calls for bringing cyberspace into the framework of international law. In particular, this would by implication mean applying the principles of proportionality and discrimination that inform the law of armed conflict, rendering critical civilian infrastructure off-limits, while permitting legitimate intelligence collection and, during periods of conflict, attacks against military targets. Thus, a missile command and control network would be a legitimate wartime target, but a city's water utilities would not. CNN and others see the statement as directed implicitly against Russia and China. The statement condemns attempts to undermine democracies, and they're looking at you, Moscow, and undercut fair competition, which would be you, Beijing, The statement doesn't name those two governments explicitly, but you don't have to be Henry Kissinger to figure this one out. The concerns on display in the statement have been addressed at length elsewhere. For example, this morning we attended a press conference convened by Global Cyber Policy Watch, a project of Cambridge Global Advisors. Three experts spoke, Tom Ridge, former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security and 43rd Governor of Pennsylvania, Nate Snyder, senior counterterrorism official with the Department of Homeland Security and the Countering Violent Extremism Task Force under U.S. President Obama, and Chris Comiskey, former Undersecretary for Management at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and current senior fellow and adjunct faculty member at Virginia Tech's Hume Center for National Security and Technology. The topic was 5G technology and what's at stake with it in terms of security. And in the context of 5G, discussions of security seem inevitably to be discussions of Huawei. The three speakers gave a thoroughly hawkish assessment of the risks of allowing the Chinese telecommunication and IT giant to achieve a dominant position in the coming 5G infrastructure. Governor Ridge characterized Huawei as, quote, basically an extension of the Chinese government, an instrumentality of the state, and in sum, a massive, massive security risk. He pointed to the large ownership stake, almost 99%, held by Chinese trade unions, which are organized under and whose leaders are appointed by the Chinese government as evidence of the company's position in China. The company's attempt to secure a dominant position for itself in 5G infrastructure is, the panel said, a long game being played patiently. It competes on price and time to market, both of which, the three speakers said, it's able to offer because of heavy government subsidies. 5G will be so pervasive in economic life, Secretary Kaminsky said, that as a globally distributed platform, it's important to avoid its domination by any one entity. Yet such domination is what Beijing aims at, the panelists said. Mr. Snyder pointed out in particular that interoperability is essential to the sort of openness one wants in 5G or any comparable infrastructure. But Huawei, he said, wants no interoperability whatsoever, which would give it a de facto vertical monopoly. In response to questions about evidence for Huawei's enjoyment of substantial government subsidies, 
and for specific intelligence tying Huawei to repression of Hong Kong dissidents and China's own Muslim minorities, the panel pointed for the most part to circumstantial evidence and a priori possibility. Snyder said, quote, there may not be a smoking gun, but it's not a hard dot to connect, End quote. We asked them how they would advise the U.S. government to engage China over this matter. Governor Ridge spoke for the panel by recommending that the administration listen to and take the advice of the intelligence community and U.S. Cyber Command. He also thought that this was an excellent time for consultation and coordinated efforts by the Five Eyes. And finally, Edward Snowden's new book, Permanent Record, is being used as fish bait, Bloomberg reports. Criminals unconnected with Mr. Snowden are emailing a PDF that purports to be the book and asks the recipient to open and share the PDF. The email says the book has been banned, which isn't true in any case, so refuse the chain letter. The PDF holds malware. Read the book if you're interested, but turn down the PDF. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, interesting stuff you wanted to cover today, uh, some stuff going on with uh, sandboxing web browsers uh, and some local host web servers. What are we talking about here today? Yeah, what this is really all about is that we see more and more web servers pop up uh, on desktops that are typically not associated with running a web server. But the reason this is happening is to make it easier to integrate uh, various software with web applications. In your web browser, it's not easy for the web browser to start an application on a laptop, on a desktop. 
So what these companies are doing, they're setting up a little web server. Then you can send a normal HTTP request to this web server, just like to any other website. And uh, that web server will now start software, collect system information, anything that the web browser, for pretty good reasons, isn't allowed to do. <laughs> and a couple of companies, well, have gotten into trouble about this recently. Yeah, I think the one that's attracted a lot of attention was uh, Zoom, the popular conferencing service. Uh, they caught some heat for this. Yes, and exactly. For for them, it was you know, usability. That's what it came down to. One of their differentiators is to be the more usable, the easier to use video conferencing uh, system. If you click on a link and you go to their website and then it would like to start the Zoom application on your system, typically in your browser, there will be a little dialogue box warning you that the website is now going to start this application. And they didn't like that. So in order to avoid that dialogue box that the user has to click on, they actually installed a web server on the user's system. Now, what, of course, hit them a little bit worse uh, than just the web server itself was that when you uninstalled the application, well, it left the web server behind. Uh, that one didn't get uninstalled. And also because, well, they didn't really secure that web server correctly, it could be used to then launch any application. Another example is also so some of the software you often get from manufacturers like Dell and such that then helps them offer support via web-based tools. So now the web-based tool can reach out to their application that's installed on your laptop, desktop, that then provides them you know, debugging, diagnostic information about your hardware. Now, is there any easy way to go through systems to audit them to see if these rogue web servers are running? Now, you should definitely... Take a look at your system, see if anything is listening on a network port. And the tricky part here is they will only typically listen if they're somewhat configured correctly on the loopback interface. Uh, so you will not be able to reach them, for example, with a port scanner or something like this. But yeah, just take a look at what's listening on your system. You'll probably be surprised even if you don't have anything bad listening on, uh, on your system. <laughs> There's always something there that you probably don't recognize. It's probably good to follow up on that and figure out what it does. And if in doubt, just uh, use a tool like Netcat or so, connect to the port, send a little HTTP request, see what you get back. It's not always HTTP. But HTTP is particularly dangerous because that could then be triggered by a malicious website that you visit in your browser. All right, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. 